Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 37. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Welcome to episode 37 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and this is episode 37. It is 1994, the most important year of the 90s. So what better topic to talk about than Kevin Smith's debut film, Clerks? And to talk about Clerks with me today is a fellow podcaster whose work is a cut above just about anything else I've heard. It is critically acclaimed. He is the winner of a Pulitzer Prize in podcasting, which none of us knew existed until they invented it just for him. Please welcome His Excellency Trentus Magnus. How are you? Uh, hello, hello, Tom. How are you? Hey, look, thank you so much for having me on the show. I've been a, a fan for a very long time now, and it's uh, really exciting to be here. So thank you for having me. Cool. No, it's great to have you on. I'm, yours is one of the few that I try to listen to just around, right around the time it comes out, kind of a drop everything and listen podcast. And being that I subscribe to what, like 15 different podcasts, it's it's kind of in my my upper rotation. So I, I love I love what you do over there. Well, and so you know what? Cool. Something that occurred to me was that, you know, now that you're on uh, the TTF feed, mm-hmm. we can kind of have what you might call must-listen podcasting because, you know, there is such a thing as must-see TV. Yeah. Well, you and me, we are must-listen podcasting, baby. Yes. <laughs> we'll cut a promo. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're going to talk about Clerks, and uh, I'm going to I'm gonna start. I'll, I'll give a little bit of background on the, on the movie. Give you guys all the little plot synopsis because as Trentis and I were talking very briefly before the show, it's safe to assume that most of you who are listening have seen this movie or have a passing knowledge of the movie. You know, unlike some of the other movies I've done on here, like, I don't know, Can't Buy Me Love or Singles or something where you may vaguely remember it. And then we're going to talk about the film, how we discovered the film, what we love about the film, and and then Kevin Smith himself. And this is one of those movies, it's almost the stuff of legend at this point. It's one of the few movies that has like kind of a story behind the making of it. And uh, that is because Kevin Smith was, for lack of a better word, a complete amateur when it came to making films. He'd gone to film school. I can't remember if he dropped out or not. But My he, understanding is that he did. He yeah. There's a sort of 
Um, it's supposed to be sort of a fast track type of film school. Mm-hmm. He showed up for like two or three months and then uh, bailed on the rest of it. Yeah, it was, and it was in Canada, from what I remember. It was in Toronto or Vancouver or something. Because I've right. seen, I, uh, I've seen some of his um, lecture. DVDs. I think I watched an evening with Kevin Smith, and maybe the second one. I don't think I watched the third one because they get a little tired after a while, and there's only so much smodcast you can take from time to time. Yeah, because I like him, but there's it's almost like I like him more than I like you know any of his friends. Right. So so I, I do it sparingly. Um, but anyway, yeah, you're right. He 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 went to film school, and as you said, he dropped out. And he he is from New Jersey. He's from Northern New Jersey, uh, the town of Leonardo which is in the Red Bank area, which a couple of my friends from college are from. And a guy I work with uh, is from near that area. And they have been to Leonardo and done the, it's almost like a a road trip to the setting of this movie, which was uh, the Quick Stop Grocery and what was at the time RST Video, but it's not anymore. I want to say it's like a check cashing place or something, but it's, you know, stores like that change hands all the time, but the building is still there from what I understand. But he basically... He one of his jobs when he was younger is we all have these jobs when we are either in our teens or our twenties and you know even beyond. Um, he was a clerk at a at a convenience store. Um, he I think he uses the phrase jockeying the register, and <laughs> he decided that he was going to make basically a film about it and would shot the film for twenty seven thousand uh, dollars self financed. I think he just basically maxed out a bunch of credit cards. And shot it at night when the store was closed, which I believe is why you have the running gag in the movie that the, the there was gum jammed in the locks of the shutters of the store. And Dante made a giant sign out of shoe polish and like a sheet that said, I assure you we're open. And through the <laughs> entire movie, there's somebody's like, what smells like shoe polish? And it's but I think that was one of the ways of getting around the fact that it was pretty much dark for most of the time they were filming in the store. It stars Brian O'Halloran as Dante Hicks, Jeff Anderson as Randall Graves, Marion, I'm going to mispronounce this, Gigliotti as Veronica, who's Dante's girlfriend, Lisa Spoonauer as Caitlin Bree, who's Dante's ex-girlfriend, and then the other two main people are Jay and Silent Bob. Jay is played by Jason Muse, and Silent Bob is played by Kevin Smith himself. And with the exception of Muse and, and Smith, none of these actors really have made much of a name for themselves. Uh, Brian O'Haran would pop up here and there, mostly in Kevin Smith's other movies, but outside of them, they've, you know, it's not like this was a career launcher on the level of, say, um, another movie that came out around the same time or a year before, which was Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. Right. Which is another movie that's absolutely great. It's another kind of indie darling of the, of the early 90s, but that had like McConaughey and Affleck and you know, some other people. The movie came out, uh, Miramax picked it up. The soundtrack to the film cost more than the production budget of the movie. Yes, it did. And I actually have the soundtrack. The soundtrack is one of those, it's an interesting mix of, of late 80s, early 90s indie rock. Uh, there's a couple of really, really good songs on there. There's a Soul Asylum song on there that's actually halfway decent. There's <laughs> there's also a bunch of tracks from the film, which was popular in the ni- in the mid-90s for film soundtracks where they would have like a track on the CD that was, you know, a line from the movie or something. Ryan, that was a really typical thing. I'm, you know what, actually that's one trend I'm glad to be done with, to be honest with you. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we were all collecting movie. We were all collecting movie waves at the time and stuff like that. They're they're still out there too. But yeah, I, I remember putting those on mixtapes and shit when I was in college. Um, but yeah, it did get it got annoying too when they when they used it to cut off the beginning of a song or something. And they were doing it with movies like Braveheart. And yeah, and that's actually the one that I think everybody remembers. Yeah, and that I dare say that's yeah, that's probably the one that killed it. Mm-hmm. You know, the other trend that I hated in the late nineties, by the way. And it started with Jerry Maguire. There's a Springsteen song that was used in Jerry Maguire. It came out before the film because it was on his greatest hits album, Secret Garden. Oh, yeah. And it's a great song. Um, it, I have I had greatest hits before it came out in, in the film. And it's a really, really sweet song. But some DJ somewhere decided that it would be genius to put lines of the movie where there are no lyrics in the song. Mm-hmm. So... You have the the music part of Secret Garden, and then you have like you know Tom Cruise saying "You complete me," and that got picked up like crazy, and it got so much airplay to the point where when Titanic came out, and that fucking Celine Dion song was everywhere, somebody <laughs> decided to do the same thing with lines from Titanic. Thankfully, the trend kind of killed itself when another DJ who was obviously as sick of it as we were started putting in clips from the first season of South Park into the song. (laughs) That was awesome. I remember driving from college. I was in college. I was driving down to see my girlfriend. And I heard this and I was like, this is hilarious. And it kind of effectively killed that because that was getting annoying too, where it's like, here's the song and here's a bunch of lines from a movie. But yeah, so yeah, the soundtrack, getting back on topic. I was just thinking about that the other day too, for whatever reason. But the but the soundtrack was it was on CD. I it might be out of print and was like I said, cost more than the film. But Miramax put it there. It it went to Sundance, did well enough, and it got distribution, and it made three point one five million dollars at the box office in nineteen ninety four. Off of an original investment of twenty seven thousand. Yeah, it was not the highest grossing movie of the year, obviously. It, I think is almost like by percentage of budget compared to gross, it's probably the biggest moneymaker of the year, if you're talking profit margin. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest movie, the, the two biggest movies of the year were The Lion King and Forrest Gump. Those were, yeah. And those were hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gross. But this, um, what this did for Smith was obviously it gave him a career. And then he would go on to make other movies, of course. The next movie where he was given a budget of about $4 million or so, I think it was, was Mallrats. And we'll, we'll talk about that. But this movie also had a huge life on video. I don't know how true the story is, but there is a story that this is one. this was one of the most stolen videotapes in history. Like I said, I have no idea whether or not that's true. I just read it on a trivia site somewhere, although it would be pretty cool if that was true, that people were just shoplifting it all the time. The film itself is a basically a day in the life of a convenience store clerk named Dante Hicks. And it is, for all intents and purposes, one of the shittiest days in the life of a convenience <laughs> store named Dante Hicks, which I guess is the reason the character's name is Dante. Because if you're familiar with um, literature, Dante wrote The Inferno, which is a journey through hell. So, And, and Smith... And I did not write the names of the sections down, but Smith divides the sections into, he has title cards. And then in some cases, they're just the name of the character, like Dante, Randall, Jay, and Silent Bob. But then there's different words on the screen that almost introduce the section of the film, like Harbinger, uh, Persipacity, I think is one of them, uh, you know. And, uh, denouement. And denouement yeah. and stuff. And so it's funny that this is 
for all the lowbrow humor in Kevin Smith's films, there's sort of a highbrow aspect to this and it comes through those and, and you know that you're getting some sort of, I don't want to say surreal or absurd type of story, but but it's the, but it's definitely there because it starts off with Dante being called into work on a day that he's off as he repeats over and over and over again. I'm not even supposed to be here today. And he, um, the boss tells him that, you know, I'm going to be here. I'll be in at 12. Don't worry. And so he comes in and, and makes the sign because there's gum jammed in the locks of the shutter doors and has to deal with customer after customer after customer and problem after problem. From in the beginning of the movie, the fact that the one of the first guys he waits on buys like a cup of coffee and he's standing there and somebody goes up to buy cigarettes and the guy launches into this whole tirade about how smoking kills you and it ends the scene ends with the customers pelting Dante with cigarettes Veronica standing on a display shooting a fire extinguisher all at all that and then finding out that the guy who was the anti-smoking guy was a <laughs> gum salesman and he was just trying to get people to buy gum um, Dante later finds had, later has a conversation with Veronica about how many people they've slept with, and he finds out even though she slept with two other people, she sucked the dicks of 36 other people, which is where the infamous line of 37 comes in. Wait, but you said you only had sex with three different guys. You never mentioned him. Because I never had sex with him. You sucked his dick. We went out a few times. We never had sex, but we fooled around. Oh, my God. Why did you tell me you only had sex with three different guys? Because I did only have sex with three different guys. That doesn't mean I didn't just go with people. Oh, my God. I feel so nauseous. Sorry, Dante. I thought you understood. I did understand. I understood that you had sex with three different guys, and that's all you said. Please calm down. How many? Dante. How many dicks have you sucked? How many? Shut up. Up a second and I'll tell you. Jesus, I didn't freak out like this when you told me how many girls you fucked. This is different. This is important. How many? Well? Um, something like 36? What? Something like 36? Who are you, boys? Well, what is that anyway? Something like 36? Does that include me? I'm 37. I'm 37? I'm 37? <laughs> Try not to suck any dick on the way through the parking lot. <laughs> hey, you, get back here. <laughs> and he deals with, and, and, and then Randall comes in late, of course, and he and, and they both deal with, uh, you know, they, they have conversations about popular culture, which is something that you didn't see a lot of at the time. They have this lengthy conversation about the end of Return of the Jedi, and whether or not there were innocent people aboard the Death Star, you know, contractors and things. Um, and this guy, this one contractor comes in and he tells them about his friend who had taken the mafia jo- boss's job and he got killed because there was a hit on the house or whatever. There was something else going on in Jedi. I never noticed it till today. They build another Death Star, right? Yeah. Now, the first one was completed and fully operational before the Rebels destroyed it. Luke blew it up. Give credit where credit's due. And the second one was still being built when they blew it up. Compliments of Lando Calrissian. Something just never sat right with me that second time around. I could never put my finger on it, but something just wasn't right. And you figured it out. The first Death Star was manned by the Imperial Army. The only people on board were stormtroopers, dignitaries, Imperials. Basically. So when they blew it up, no problem. Evil's punished. And the second time around? The second time around, it wasn't even done being built yet. It was still under construction. So? So a construction job of that magnitude would require a hell of a lot more manpower than the Imperial Army had to offer. I'll bet they brought independent contractors in on that thing. 
plumbers, aluminum siders, roofers. Uh, not just Imperials. Is that what you're getting at? Exactly. In order to get it built quickly and quietly, they'd hire anybody that can do the job. I think the average stormtrooper knows how to install a toilet main. All they know is killing in white uniforms. All right, so they bring in independent contractors. Why are you so upset at its destruction? All those innocent contractors brought in to do the job were killed. Casualties of a war they had nothing to do with. All right, look. You're a roofer. Some juicy government contract comes your way. You got a wife and kids, the two-story in suburbia. This is a government contract, which means all sorts of benefits. Along come these left-wing militants and blast everything within a three-mile radius with their lasers. You didn't ask for that. You have no personal politics. You're just trying to scrape out a living. Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, what are you talking about? The ending of Return of the Jedi. My friend here is trying to convince me that any independent contractors who were working on the uncompleted Death Star were innocent victims when they were destroyed by the rebels. Well, I'm a contractor myself. I'm a roofer. Done and ready home improvements. And speaking as a roofer, I can tell you a roofer's personal politics comes into play heavily when choosing jobs. Like when? Three weeks ago, I was offered a job up in the hills. Beautiful house. Tons of property. A simple re-shingling job. They told me if I could finish it in one day, I would double my price. Then I realized whose house it was. Whose house was it? Dominic Bambino's. Babyface Bambino? The gangster? The same. The money was right, but the risk was too high. I knew who he was, and based on that, I turned the job over to a friend of mine. Based on personal politics. Right, and the next week, the Foresi family put a hit on Babyface's house. My friend was shot and killed didn't even finish reshingling. No way. I'm alive because I knew the risk involved in that particular client. My friend wasn't so lucky. Any contractor working on that Death Star knew the risk involved. If they got killed, it's their own fault. A roofer listens to this, not his wallet. And the plot as it is, is that Dante's still hung up on his ex-girlfriend, Caitlin, the girl he dated in high school who had cheated on him eight and a half times, Caitlin Bree, you know, who probably screwed around, she was screwing around and she was jerking him around and she, he's still talking to her on the phone even though she's away at college and, and, he, and he's not. Veronica keeps trying to get him to go back to school and so he's kind of in this sort of, I'm just working this job and, and kind of in this state of almost like inertia. Um, and over the course of the film, he finds out that Caitlin's going to get married. The boss calls and says that he calls the boss to find out where he is. And he discovers that the boss was lying to him and he went to Vermont to ski. So instead of going to the hockey game, he was supposed to go to, to play, they play hockey on the roof of the building. They then close the store later to go to the wake of a girl who he used to date in high school. Randall knocks the casket over. <laughs> In a scene that is a lost scene, but on the Clerks 10th anniversary DVD, they've animated it, which is, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, I can get yeah. to that in a, in a few minutes. Um, and then Caitlin, sh- um, a guy comes in to use the bathroom, grabs a porno mag and goes back to the bathroom. And we forget about him for most of the movie. Caitlin comes back, tells Dante she's not going to marry this guy. And he basically says, I want to be your boyfriend, and they make a date. He goes home to change. She comes in. She goes back into the bathroom to go to the bathroom, and Dante comes back in the front of the store where Randall's set up in the quick stop watching a porno flick, and she comes out all like satisfied, telling him he's not never been like that. He was just ready for her and she just fucked his brains out. And he's like, I wasn't even here. Randall was like, I was up here the whole time. And we find out it was the old guy who went into the bathroom like 10 minutes earlier in the film. 
um, and she's fucked a dead guy, and she's taken away in an ambulance. And then Randall tells Veronica that Dante wants to date Caitlin. She gets pissed off, kicks the crap out of Dante, and breaks up with him. And then when he finds when she tells him Randall told her, he's ticked off. And the end of the movie is first basically a. F- not even a fist fight. It's like a let's throw different products in the store at each other fight between Donde and Randall. At one <laughs> point, he mentions that like Randall sprayed him in the eyes with FDS, which, if you're unfamiliar with that product, stands for feminine deodorant spray. <laughs> <laughs> and then, as they're cleaning up the store, they have they have this argument, uh, you know. Dante basically just does this whole lament of all the things that have happened and then he finishes it off with and to top it all off I'm not even supposed to be here today and that's where Randall goes off on him about like you know you piss and moan about all these things that have happened to you but it's really your fault I'm not even supposed to be here today you sound like an asshole Jesus nobody twisted your arm to be here you're here of your own volition you like to think the weight of the world rests on your shoulder like this place would fall apart if Dante wasn't here Jesus, you overcompensate for having what's basically a monkey's job. You push fucking buttons. Anybody could waltz in here and do our jobs. You, you're so obsessed with making it seem so much more epic, so much more important than it really is. Christ, you work in a convenience store, Dante. And badly, I might add. I work in a shitty video store. Badly as well. You know, that guy Jay's got it right, man. He has no delusions about what he does. Us, we like to make ourselves seem so much more important than the people that come in here to buy a paper or, God forbid, cigarettes. We look down on them as if we're so advanced. Well, if we're so fucking advanced, what are we doing working here? And then they end with um, with the store closing for the night, and things go on. Although the original cut of the movie actually had Dante getting shot. They took that out before it went to wide release, which probably worked better. Because um, it's, it's a dark comedy in some ways, but it's not a dark comedy on the level of something like Heather's was or something like that so it would have been a very very odd ending um, but and that's my very quick and dirty I'm probably missing a bunch of stuff plot synopsis of clerks what I wanted to do though is to, in talking to you and then myself is that this is one of those movies that we all have seen and we all have watched and we all remember but it's also unique in that we all discovered it you know, a movie like The Avengers, Man of Steel, Tim Burton's Batman film, or, you know, the the big movies, any of the Star Wars movies, we all can remember where we were when we saw them, but there are certain movies that, like, you know, we're all going to go see this movie because we see it advertised and stuff. Nobody saw commercials for Clerks no. on television back in 1994. And uh, so my question really was, and to really get the discussion going after I kind of did that info dump, was how, how did you discover the film? Well, it was a little bit of a, of a two-step process. And what I'm going to assume is that step one of this is actually going to be very familiar, probably mm-hmm. to at least 40 or 50% of the people listening to this. Mm-hmm. There were some people who discovered um, clerks, by way of clerks itself you know it was getting passed around or something like that between a group of friends or you know and i would think especially in college that type of thing was very common um i was way 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 be sort of below that age level and so my gateway into clerks and this is not to go off topic but this is my but my gateway into clerks actually was mole rats i saw that because nobody fucking let's face it nobody saw that movie either i did and um 
I'm sorry, do what? I did. Oh, you saw it? I saw I was one of the five people to see it in the theater. We went to see we went to see like a nine o'clock showing. Mm-hmm. I was I, up in up in Towson, Maryland, and we stuck around after the movie was over for the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> I distinctly remember going to see Mallrats in the theater because I saw Rocky Horror on the same night for the first time in a theater. That must have been one hell of a surreal evening for you. But, it was uh, weird, but but that's why that's why one day you and I are going to sit down and talk about Mallrats because it's one of those movies where like I'm like I'm one of the five people who saw. This. <laughs> <laughs> well. And um, yeah, well, okay, fine. Most of us didn't Most. see um, Mallrats yeah. uh, in in theaters, but we did catch it on video. And so I was a freshman in high school. Mallrats had pretty much just bombed out at the um, movie theater, but it had sort of found its audience. I think more on home video than it did in in theaters. Mm-hmm. And so you know, there's really no way to watch Mallrats without you know the person who went because everybody had somebody who introduced them to Mallrats. Yeah, said you know. If you like this movie, man, there's an even better one. And so, and, and so, you know, I wanted to get you know a little bit of information about that. I was like, okay, well, all right, well, you know, maybe someday I'll I'll check that out. And like I say, I think that's probably the the like the way that a crapload of people out there discovered Clerks. But step two, what like when I actually saw it, this was that was the Mallrats thing. I was a freshman in high school when I finally saw Clerks. I was a senior in high school, mm-hmm. and what had happened was I, I'd gotten. It's a sort of a long story, and I'm I'm not even completely sure how it happened, but I just I ended up fucking getting mono, and I had Satan's own case of mono, where uh, basically every single symptom that's on the list. I don't want to gross anybody out, so I'll just say every symptom that's on the list, I had it in spades. I even had a few of the optional ones too. I mean, I I was maxed out when it came to mono, and you um, pay for the deluxe package, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> And so, and what ended up happening was I was, I was kept home from school for something like total, probably like two months. And especially at the beginning, it was, it was a pretty serious type of situation where the fever was so high that I couldn't go to sleep. I mean, I I wasn't able to sleep for for days sometimes. And so, um, but you need something, anything to occupy your mind. And so I would just watch crap loads and crap loads of movies. Mm. Well, at least back in the late 90s, you're watching movies on cable TV. It, it doesn't take very long to cycle through everything. So I'd start renting movies. And, you know, basically things that I'd never seen before, but I'd always kind of wanted to see, but never made time for, yeah. of which one was, say it with me, Clerks. Yeah. <laughs> so what I ended up doing was just taking it home. And, um, I, and at that point, I want to say that I hadn't slept, and it was probably very close to 24 hours. And on top of all of that, my fever was starting to was starting to go back up, and all of that. So I had to, you know, take all of my medicine and everything. So it's a really weird and surreal way to see Clerks for the first time when you're you're exhausted, but you can't sleep. You've got the sky high fever, yeah. and you know your medicines and stuff are, are are working on you and everything. But the takeaway that I had from Clerks seeing it for the first time was that. This I, I would almost want to compare it to The Graduate for our parents' generation where a lot of people saw that and they connected to that movie, I think, in ways that maybe weren't I, – I say inappropriate in the sense of not being completely intended by the filmmakers where they connected to Ben yeah. and what he was going through, that sort, that sort of aimless driftlessness. You know, you've done everything in life that you're supposed to do and fucking now what? And in that same way that they saw their generation – on screen really for the first time with the graduate 
I think that holds true for us with Clerks, where I saw Mallrats, and to me it was just it, it, it was a funny, silly movie, and you don't really think about it beyond that. Huh. Clerks, though, I this this that was the first movie that I I can remember seeing and and saying to myself, that is my generation. Yeah, you feel like you. That was kind of my reaction that you know these people. Like mm-hmm. I talked about Reality Bites earlier in the year, which is a movie I still enjoy, but there is a little bit of polish to that movie, and I never really connected fully to those characters because when I saw it, I was still in high school, so I didn't know from a lot of those experiences. But with Clerks, I like I can look at Dante Randall and at least a couple of the other, even Jay and Silent Bob, and be like, and and think of somebody I knew, or even on some level myself who existed in that world. And it's not just because I'm from Long Island and New Jersey, you know, New Jersey and Long Island are basically each other's moron cousin. But <laughs> but the, just some of the things that happen, I'm like, yeah, my friends would do this or this would be. And there's that sort of boredom that comes from living in the suburbs that that movie captures on a level that's kind of raw that really hadn't been captured in a comedy before. Maybe The Graduate was probably the only one. I think I'm glad you brought up The Graduate because that is one of the few that really does capture it in a very sort of almost, I don't want to use the phrase cinema verite because I don't think I'm exactly accurate with that statement, but, you know. Well, there's a zeitgeist that both of those yeah. movies are, are are tapping into <clears throat> a sort of, yeah. I don't know, you could call it like a generational sort of malaise. Mm-hmm. And maybe that, and actually, I, and now that I think about it, I think that's actually one of the interstitials in the uh, movie. Is Malays, yeah, Malays is so. one of the interstitials. <laughs> You're right. One of the inspirations for Mallrats was Kevin Smith basically trying to make like a John Hughes movie, right? On some level, and Hughes captured life as a teenager in suburbia pretty well, but he also did it from almost a fantasy sort of angle that had realistic parts to it, but was always sort of there was like I said, there was always a little bit of of finesse put on a lot of those films and this probably because of its budget and because of the experience of everybody involved this doesn't have it and i think that's one of the things that makes this movie as important as it is well and as much as i agree with that my little conspiracy theory on this has always been that even if and of course this would never have happened but mm-hmm. even if somebody had fired off six or ten million dollars at kevin smith and told him make the movie that you want to make it would still have that sort of energy to it because he was so at that point in his life so he was still so close arguably still in that very situation that he's fictionalizing on screen yeah that he didn't there 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 really was no I, i'm not sure how best to put it. there's no kind of sort of winsome nostalgia for it um mm-hmm. uh, as far as he's concerned he's living it still Whereas John Hughes, I think he was, and as much as anything, recalling his own teenage experience from the mother of all rose-colored glasses, yeah, and then imposing that upon uh, the the young people of his time, yeah, whether it fit or not, and I tend to think I don't know if it was a perfect fit, but it, I don't think it's too far off. That would never have flown. That type of approach would never have worked for Clerks because. It, it it's not exactly boys in the hood, but this is not necessarily a happy story either. You know, it's, I think if you're going to take an '80s teen movie and kind of do a comparison with Clerks, it would probably be Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which oh. is it has the '80s soundtrack. Cameron Crowe wrote it 
based on a book where he went undercover in a high school. If you watch that film, it is a lot kind of on the same level where there's funny, but there's also very, very serious, and it doesn't have as it doesn't have that sort of Hughes polish to it. And you know, it's a little bit more slick, but at the same time, I think that I think it's kind of on that level of there's a there's a real more raw connection that you would have to it as a, a as a teenager back then. Mm-hmm. And but with this, you know, you're right is that he was going through this he, like I said he was working at the store where he was filming it. Right. So he was filming it at night and he was kind of moonlighting there and then you know, I I, I wonder I wonder what this movie would have been sometimes if it hadn't made the money it did or gotten picked up by Miramax. Like, would this have been just one of those movies that essentially gets passed around to different filmmakers and it becomes almost the stuff of legend and eventually gets released and then you wonder, like, you know, like kind of like that first, very, very first South Park episode, the Jesus versus Santa one that Mm -hmm. they had made on, you know, a very shoestring budget and it got passed around Hollywood and eventually somebody, the right person, got their hands on it and said, you know, you should give these guys a deal. And I wonder if that would have been the fate of Clerks before Kevin Smith's, like, you know, real first movie. But it well, did make a lot of money, so. Well, yeah, but, uh, and, um, you know, yeah, I, I think that's one of those things that's sort of interesting to think about, you know, just how different, hell, how, you know, how different m- might things have turned out if it had been shot in color, you know? Because yeah. I, I think this this movie, is a, it's a very specific thing Partly because, let's face it, it's so ineptly made, mm-hmm. but there, there's a charm to it that, you know, you after a while, audiences in, 19, in the, especially in about the midpoint of the 1990s, the idea of seeing a movie in black and white, we, it, it took a long time, I think, for some of us to, to kind of get our heads around that. And it was one of those things that eventually, I think part of this movie's success ultimately comes from the fact that it's in black and white. Yeah. And so we're willing to let, just subconsciously, we're willing to let a lot of shit slide. Whereas if this thing had been shot in color, I don't think it would be remembered fondly at all. I really don't. I think you're right. It's very, it's, having it in black and white makes it very lo-fi. Um, and and th- that it's the one thing, it's one of the things that does set it apart, at least at the beginning. And then you honestly don't even notice half the time that it is it is in black and white. But in color, it probably would have just been a another underappreciated half failure, half um, you know success too. Right, so, and unfortunately, I'm I'm at a loss to think of anything specific that we could compare that to. But yeah, I think yeah, I know, I know. What you're, where you're coming. Like basically, I would think of it. Richard Linklater's um, Slacker had mm-hmm. a very specific type of reputation. So what if yeah. his career had never gone anywhere? We I think would still remember Slacker. It just wouldn't be a legend. Clerks is a legend. Yeah. Slacker is a Slacker is now like a film class mainstay. I'm um, actually to watch it for a film class, and that's a film that it bears a rewatch because I remember my first introduction to Linklater was Dazed and Confused. So I was kind of that's an odd movie to have yourself be introduced to Richard Linklater, kind of on the same level as if you actually had watched School of Rock or something, because it's a lot unlike his other films. And um, so when I sat down to watch Slacker, I expected, I think I was expecting something different, but I, I essentially got, with, with Dazed and Confused, I got American Graffiti, set in 1976. Hmm. With Slacker, you kind of get Nashville. 
And that's a whole, it's a whole other paper. And I'm saying that only because my film class teacher had compared the two. And I'm, that's what I remember his comparison. Because we had just watched Nashville, which is a film that I didn't expect to like. And I was like, I really like this movie. Um, but, you know, with Dazed and Confused, it's essentially American Graffiti set 20 years later. but And still very, very good. Don't know what ever happened to the director of American Graffiti. I don't think he ever went anywhere. Anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so did you... so? Did it take more than one viewing of this movie to have an impact on you, or were you just hooked right into you have to see that, like telling people you've got to watch this movie? Well, keep in mind, you know, um, when I watched it, it was probably around at the absolute latest, February of 1999. Mm-hmm. By which point, you know, Smith's career, to to whatever degree it did take off, it had taken off by then. Yeah. And so this wasn't. It, I think at that point it wasn't the type of a mo- uh, It wasn't the type of movie that one evangelized. Um, but what I did come away thinking was that you know I could see absolutely where someone like some movie executive somewhere would watch this movie and think maybe not this specific movie, but this filmmaker mm-hmm. has an insight into one of our core. Um, one of our core audiences, one, you know, one of our key demographics. And I could see where this would be somebody's gateway into a proper Hollywood career. Yeah. But it wasn't the sort of thing where, because by, by, the, by the time I saw it, uh, this movie's legend and Smith's legend had kind of been cemented so much. Mm-hmm. There really wasn't much more for me to add to it at that point. But one of the things that I do remember is that I was, I was pretty much bought into this movie within, I want to say about, five or ten minutes and I think the thing that really sold me on I guess the authenticity of the movie is that bit where Dante opens up the store for the day because the uh, gum locks are all closed and everything yeah. so he so he just rolls with that but otherwise he does all of his normal morning duties and then he just kind of passes out a little bit at the um, at the cash register and it's not that exactly but I had been in that type of a situation so many times where you're just going through the motions, doing all your morning duties, and then once you get finished with all your daily prep, there's nothing to do. And it's early in the morning and everything. And that was something that I had lived so many times that I didn't – I don't know. For some reason, that just hit me where I live, and after that, I was in on the movie. Well, there's that line. He's he's on the floor behind the register with Veronica, and there's a sign on the counter – you know, there's some change, you know, take the change or whatever. And she's like, how do you know, like, people are being honest? He's like, most people come in for paper or coffee at this point in the morning. And How much money did you leave up there? Like $3 and mixed change and a couple of singles. This time in the morning, people just get paper or coffee. You're trusting. Why do you say that? How do you know they're taking the right amount of change or even paying for what they take? Theoretically, people see money on the counter and no one around. They think they're being watched. Honesty through paranoia. I I didn't work behind the counter of a convenience store, but one of my first jobs was I was like thirteen, and my job was making about twenty five bucks a week at thirteen years old to put the Sunday papers together. Mm-hmm. The Daily News, the New York Post, the New York Times, all and Newsday all shipped their half of their Sunday stuff on Saturday, like you know the arts section, the travel section, the shit that doesn't need to be you know hot off the press. And then in the morning on Sunday morning, the rest of the paper comes in. And my job was to literally put those papers together so the customers can come pick them up on Sunday morning. And that's exactly how it was. They came in the paper coffee. They talked to the guy behind the counter and they left. And then it really wasn't until, 
And there's no real clock on the wall in the movie, but you could imagine that maybe about like 10, 11 o'clock is where all the weirdos start to file in on a weekend. Like, you know, the randos that they're getting. The the, the guidance counselor sitting in the aisle running tests on the eggs and that shit starts to happen. But you're right. Smith didn't have to go out of his way to, to make the movie feel authentic. He just kind of was going from instinct. So it doesn't feel forced either. Right, and I think that's actually the very thing that makes it easier to overlook the some of the missteps that he makes in the movie. Like the whole guidance counselor testing the egg thing mm-hmm. is just not funny. I'm I'm sorry. You know, um, I've never laughed at it. I've never it, thought of it. Mm-hmm. Except for the last line of the scene, though. It's important to have a job that counts, boys. That's why I manually masturbate caged animals for artificial insemination. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, that said by his sister, one. by the way. <laughs> that was his sister. That I didn't was know his that. Sister. Oh wow. <laughs> well, and you know the um, the thing is that you know there are there are, when you think about it, there really is a disproportionate number of moments in this movie that don't work. Mm-hmm. That in a weird kind of way, I think ultimately do make the movie work because of the fact that it's it, you know you said you the the term that you used just a little while ago that I think is so perfect is that it's lo-fi. Yeah. And you know you there was a time when that was kind of a trend in, uh, in, in, in music where yeah. you'd have these, as the name would suggest, incredibly lo-fi type bands that are releasing music that honestly, it's, maybe it's, it's okay, maybe it's not, but the whole, I guess, gestalt of it is the fact that it's lo-fi. Yeah. And so you're willing to overlook a whole lot of maybe bad ideas that they have because of the fact, hey, it's fucking lo-fi, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing here where... You know, any one of the flaws in this movie, might, I don't know if I'd go so far as they would might be enough to sink it, but there are so many just – there are some really funny bits in the movie. Don't misunderstand oh, me. Yeah. But there was, I, I'm tempted to say there's an almost equal number of things that really just aren't all that funny, but we still somehow roll with it because, yeah, hey, it's it's black and white. It's an indie, food, yeah. it's an indie film. It's this guy's first effort, you know, and it, it's just – it's one of those things that – I think the fact that Smith wins you over so early on that when you know when you finally do get to the the less funny uh, things, and you will, it's still okay because you know you're still on the same journey with these characters. Like that moment where where uh, uh, Randall comes out of uh, out of Quick Stop, and somebody put up a little di- like a comic book style dialogue balloon that says "I, I eat cock. cock," yeah, and it's one of those things that it's it it could be funny it just there's just an eye there's a way to set up that scene that smith just did not have yeah. and so he had a good idea he just didn't know how to how to bring it forward and it's okay though because in the end there's a lot of heart to this movie is, is i guess what i'm saying and the more intelligent stuff wins out over a lot of the dumber jokes and humor which is missing from a number of his later films. Um, I actually, uh, I'm, my my uh, discovery of this movie is slightly different than yours because um, I was a senior in high school in 94. So I saw it in the summer of 95. Um, and uh, I actually did introduce a couple of people to it in college because, not because Mallrats hadn't come out yet, but it was about August, September of 95. And we'd been watching Pulp Fiction, but we were also watching stuff like Friday, and mm-hmm. oh, there was another comedy, and I said, you know, have you guys seen Clerks? 
And they're like, no, no. So we went and rented it at Blockbuster, and I showed my roommates it for the first time, and then that just became that became in the that got into the regular rota- rotation. I had been dating this girl, and this relationship ended badly about a year later. But we, when we were bored, we would go and rent videos, and um, I kept seeing this movie on the shelf. And I kept picking it up, and I'm like, this looks interesting. She's like, no, 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 I want to rent whatever fucking shit she wanted to rent. And so, oh, God, the client. You know, like some of these things where I was just like, can we watch something that's a little bit different? But so one night, I'm. It's it was just a random weeknight, and I happen to be, you know, home alone. And, and I went to the, you know, and I spent a lot of time at the video store when I was a teenager because, you know, a lot of times I just didn't have anything to do on a Friday or Saturday night. And, you know... I would go and rent. If I didn't have anything on the new release shelf that was interesting, I'd just go and rent, you know, whatever crap I'm used, used to renting. So I I had gone in, I picked up Clerks off the new release shelf, and I took it up there. I had been like, I've been, I had been taking this, picking this movie up like five or six times and five or six different trips to the video store. So I took it up to there, and the guy working behind the counter has just like, have you seen this movie? And I was like, no, but I keep looking. He said, it's awesome. You know, have, have, you, have you ever worked behind a counter like that? I said, no, I have plenty of friends who have. He's like, trust me, you'll love this. So I was like, all right. And he was a pretty cool guy. He was like, he ran the, he was, he was the type of video store guy who was kind of like the good comic book store guy and that you had that, con- you could have good conversations with him about what's good and what's not. And he never looked down on you for anything, which right. can be rare because, you know, there's there's those guys, and then there's like you know, Jack Black and High Fidelity, who can be a total prick to to some of the customers. Um, <laughs> not that the guy who said who wanted I just called to say I love you wasn't didn't have bad taste in music or anything, but um, so I go home and rent it, and I rent it. I go home, and I didn't watch it that night for whatever reason because I think maybe my friends called and we went out, so I had to return the movie. My sister, who is only about a year old, I think she's about a year older than you. Right. She was going to be a sophomore in high school, and I was going to be a sophomore in college. And I was going to be a freshman in college, so so she's about three years younger than me. I said, you want to watch a movie? She's like, yes. Yeah. So we sat down in the living room. Nobody was home. We're watching this movie, and we started laughing pretty hard around the conversation about Veronica sucking 37 dicks. When Caitlin goes into the bathroom... I look at her, I looked at Nancy, and I said, that guy never came out of the bathroom. And we hear the noise, and Randall says, she's been back there for a long time. We literally were on the floor laughing our asses (laughs) off because we knew she was fucking this guy. And then when the corpse comes out, we were like, we lost it. We completely lost it. And I know it's one of the sillier bits of the movie, but at like 18 and, and, and 14, 15 years old, it was like, it was absolutely perfect. And... And then, and then I was just kind of like a, I pirated the movie, so I dubbed the movie. Oh wow! <laughs> Which we all used to do. I yes, cler- we did. I had Clerks and Mallrats and Chasing Amy on the same tape. I probably still have the tape somewhere, even though I have all three of those movies on. No, I have Clerks and Mallrats on DVD. I have Chasing Amy on a legitimate VHS copy, and then we watched it over and over and over again in college. I had one of the posters on my wall because I bought it at a campus poster sale, and and. Um, we're pretty pretty fixated on most of his movies, but yeah, it just became one of those kind of. For me, it was almost like the next level of a good comedy film for me. Yeah, I tend I tend to agree. There was a um, there's 
at the same time, it's funny because you know there's this there's this moment where like they when they haul the dead guy out of the bathroom, mm-hmm. he's got just this giant fucking member that's just sticking up, <laughs> and and the magazine sitting on the edge of the gurney, like right. that's yeah, weird. <laughs> yeah, and there is no mystery about you know what it is that happened, yeah. and so you have something that's so I don't know it's because it, when you think about it, as far as tone, this movie really is all over the map. On the one mm-hmm. hand, you have this sort of uh, there's the real sort of everyday um, story of, of just a guy who hates his fucking job, doesn't know what else to do with himself, though, and so he's just kind of stuck there. He's conflicted about, you know, who he wants to be with, you know, uh, you know who he really loves and everything. Yeah. And then at the same time that all that stuff is going on, you've also got, you know, people in these blatantly fucking impossible situations. There is no way anyone in real life is going to somehow accidentally fuck a dead person. But you buy it. Somehow you buy it, and I don't get it. It shouldn't work, but it does. It's fucking hysterical. Yeah, like the the hockey on the roof, that was some of my friends because we used to play roller hockey all the time, and I showed them this movie. I said, go rent this movie, and we watched the movie, and that was their favorite scene because that's what – we did on the weekends and but the the hockey and the roof i even think i'm like how is it logistically possible you know like <laughs> i'm like right that's really... a pretty small roof yeah. yeah i'm like okay but but again it's just ridiculous and so and i think he never really puts any pretense off of this not being ridiculous too i think that's what helps yeah so i don't know i just all around this is for for good reason, this is uh, sort of one of those generational hallmarks. But the one – like everybody uh, with this uh, – what I've noticed is when it comes to this movie, everybody has that one line mm-hmm. that that just gets them right between the eyes, you know? And uh, for a lot of people, it's basically something or another that, that Randall says. But for me, the point that kind of hit home for me just because of where I was, like emotionally at the time – at the very end, you know, uh, Dante is just, you know, wrestling over Caitlin, Veronica, yeah. Caitlin, Veronica. And in some ways, it's kind of like, you know, Archie saying, Betty, Betty Veronica. Veronica. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but Silent Bob, the one line he has in the entire movie, he says, you know, there's a million fine w- looking women in the world, dude, but not all of them bring you lasagna at work. Most of them just cheat on you. And that is so fucking true, dude, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I don't know why, but that's just one of those lines that has just kind of stuck with me over the years. You know, I, I there's a lot of really memorable and quotable dialogue in this yeah. in this movie, but that one, there was something about that line. I think I'm going to remember it even when I'm in the old folks' home and got nothing. I've only got two or three marbles rolling around upstairs. I'm going to be the old guy drooling in the corner that no one understands what the hell he's saying, but he keeps repeating to himself, the oh, fine-looking women in the world, dude. Not all of them bringing lasagna at work. Most of them just cheating. What the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> um, you know you know what makes the scene even better is that simultaneously during that scene mm-hmm. is where Veronica's over at the video store and Randall's breaking up with her. or Randall's telling her that Dante wants to get back with Caitlin because the very next scene, and I'm, I'm off the time I had, I believe the very next scene is Veronica coming in and not just breaking up with Dante, but like kicking him on the floor and screaming and hitting with her person, screaming, You want the slut? Fine, the slut is yours. So it's almost like it's there, it's the, the movie actually has a very down ending because 
you know, in, in any typical polished Hollywood production, Veronica would be like, oh, he really does love me. And they'd get back together. You know, everything would be smoothed out. And Caitlin, I don't know what the hell would have happened to Caitlin. But, you know, th- there would be a reconciliation. And she just, well, she just like, he's like, but I love you. And she just walks out and says, fuck you. And, and that's it. And it and it's almost like he realizes it too late. And then later in the movie, one of my favorite actual lines later in the movie is one of Randall's lines. It's that whole speech he gives at Dante, where he basically says, "Just get your shit together," because mm-hmm. he's like, "He's like, you know, I'm not who's supposed to be here today. You sound like an asshole." You know, I mean, yes, because there's <laughs> so many. Line. We've all worked with that person too. Do it's almost like we're you're at a meeting. I was at a meeting recently with a bunch of people, and there's people who I work with who just do nothing but complain. And it's almost like you you sit back and let them have their bitch time. But we all work with that person who you kind of look at them and we're like, do you realize that all your complaining like can be solved if you just kind of kick your own ass in gear a little bit? You know, it's not not everybody is responsible for your problems. You know. And, yeah, and, and that sort of leads into um, you know, it's it's one of those things you don't really notice until somebody like points it out to you. Go back and look at everything that Randall says and does in this movie. He is like this fountain of wisdom and good advice and stuff that you need to be doing, and he's never factually, well, maybe, but philosophically, he's never wrong about anything that he says. Yeah. You know, his methods aren't always the best. But the advice that he gives to Dante, you know, you need to shit or get off the pot. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to. Uh, anyway, I, I'm now, now I'm kind of blanking on it, but literally, like rip into that, the customers, like complain about the customers. It's okay, and they go through that whole montage of each of them experiencing the same three people, which is one of, one of has which has one of my other all time favorite lines from this movie. What do you mean? There's no ice. You mean I got to drink this coffee hot? <laughs> That's a good line. You know, and the girl, what what? How much does this cost? Like ninety nine cents. I deal with that shit every day at work. Ninety nine cents behind. They're like, what? What's the date on the board? What's the date? It's on the board. You know. And you're right, though. He's he also doesn't seem to. Randall's completely honest with himself too. You've always gotten that right feeling. The moment when um, uh, you know, Randall comes back in. Mm-hmm. Again, this is this is sort of it, it kind of calls back to that moment where there are bits in this movie that by all rights really don't work, but we I don't know why we just overlook it. And you kind of touched on it whenever you're doing the um, synopsis, but that bit where Randall comes back into the store and then he and Dante have their sort of candy aisle showdown. Yeah. Afterward, you know, that's the you, you know, they're uh, basically just hanging around and kind of commiserating. And then, like you said, you know, and then to top it all off, I'm not even supposed to be, be here, here today. And then, yeah. and then he does nothing for the next, like, I don't know, like two or three minutes solid. But he just dresses Dante down the yeah. way a good friend, if you're lucky enough to have a good friend, the way that you would want your good friend to kick you in the ass when you really need it. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't feel good in the moment, but you need someone who can be raw with you. And in that moment, yeah, he did screw up yeah, his relationship with uh, Veronica. Mm-hmm. Did he? Or did or did Dante do that himself? Yeah. You know? And there's just, I don't know, there's just, there's there's a, at, at the same time that there is nothing real about that scene whatsoever, there's a fucking truth to it, you know? 
you pointed out how the I eat cockpit, the way it's shown, the way it's shot just doesn't work. And even then, that's a juvenile prank that only like Beavis and Butthead would have appreciated anyway. But you, the, the whole fight scene is like, you actually only see them like, there's two like cuts of, I think, him, one of them hitting the other one with a baguette and a loaf of bread or something, and then one of them choking the other one. And But most of the fight is just, obviously, they were off camera just throwing candy into the shot because, I don't know, Smith probably couldn't, just didn't know how to film that or couldn't film that the way he wanted or or whatever. And you're right. It's you'd never get into an act. I mean, I'm not maybe it's just me. I have not been in with aside from maybe like, you know, playing hockey with my friends and us getting into quote unquote fights during the hockey game, you know. I haven't been into a in a fight with somebody since I was in the seventh grade. Mm. And you don't I mean, I don't know, you there would probably been a more heated confrontation between them two, and I think he was just going for a really comedic, comedic beat with this fight that happens between them. Um, but you're right; it, it you overlook that because it leads to a very, very honest scene and one of the most well scripted lines in the film. So it's almost like it's okay. You kind of get over that little clunkiness to get to something that is genuinely, kind of like genuinely a, a really great, great scene. Well, and the other thing that you know, um, I don't know that this movie ever really gets total props for. But, you know, you can watch a movie and enjoy, you know, performances and things like that. And after a while, it's kind of easy to forget about the process of acting. Fact is, though, is that the uh, the actors in this movie, mo- like several of them aren't even actors by trade. But even the ones that were trying to become actors didn't really have any kind of real experience with acting. No. And, and there are moments where, um, let me think. I think with Lisa Spoonhour, you really get the idea. Yeah, no, she is definitely not an actress. Yeah. But, you know, Jeff Anderson, not an actor either. But it, there, are, there are times when what he says comes across with just this believability. And I don't think he would consider himself to be an actor actor. I think, he, I think his attitude is he's good at playing a particular type of character. But that's really it. Yeah. But even so, you know, there's when you think about just how good the performances in this movie really are when by all rights they shouldn't be it's yeah. still i don't know I, that that's one of those things that's always impressed me no it's always impressed me too and it's always impressed me that that there are so many i mean it's it's an independent film shot on a low budget there are so many long takes in this movie and this was during an age where you were still shooting on film you know a lot of small budget films now the type of shit gets loaded up to YouTube and stuff you can now shoot on um, you, you could do, use an iPhone you use an iPhone because because now small cameras have HD capability whereas back in um, 1993 1994 video was still videotape it was still camcorder and that was not the type of footage that you wanted it was very very low quality in terms of footage so fil- part of the $27,000 for him went to camera and film so he couldn't do multiple takes if he wanted to he probably did from time to time but it's not like he couldn't be like Stanley Kubrick in The Shining getting what it was at a hundred and something takes out of Shelley Duvall for like one scene right and these are long takes some of these scenes go on for minutes of dialogue which is aside from being on the stage you know is something that you're not used to to seeing in a film and it's because of the fact that he's just on a low budget film but you I, I give a lot of credit credit to the actors there for not blowing the scene too 
And that would have been an easy thing to do. Uh-huh. Yeah, very. I don't know that I could have done it to be honest. Especially with that much dialogue in a in a in a, um, in a scene too. Um, yeah. And to and the, there are some clunky deliveries in the movie. I mean, again, it's one of those things you overlook. There are a couple of lines that people are they they it's almost like they're struggling to remember their lines, or maybe they're reading off of something or whatever. But then there is just a natural flow to some of the conversation that sounds like something that you and I would have, or you and your friends would have, and yeah. have had. Yeah, that's I mean, and and that's something else. You know, there there's that whole bit where. Uh, uh, Dante and Randall are talking about independent contractors on board the second Death Star mm-hmm. and were they innocent victims and all that stuff. And I'm that tendency to just kind of analyze the minutia of pop culture yeah. is something that I think whether you ever saw this movie or not, that's the same type of shit you were talking about with your friends. Maybe it wasn't Star Wars. Maybe it wasn't independent contractors, but that that whole idea of overanalyzing something. To... What's the line in your in your um, in the intro to your show? It's super nerd nitpicking over something that really isn't that important. Or that's right. I think that's the line, right? And that's basically yeah. yeah. And we used to do that with comics all the time. And I mean, uh, of still all do. Of... Of all of Smith's movies, you know what's you know what's really interesting. You know, of all of Smith's movies, this is the one that I think comic book fans took closest to heart. Mm-hmm. But I guess the the irony there is that this is the one that has the least comic book geeky type of content. I mean, apart from that one discussion about Star Wars, yeah. By the way, people, during a time and place when nobody was talking about Star Wars anymore. <laughs> Yeah, Star Wars, I think, when did Heir to the Empire come out? Maybe two or three years before this? 1991, I believe. Yeah, so the EU is just kind of getting its getting its wheels going. The toy line didn't start up back again to another year or two after this. That's right. So you're right. There was It was in that dead period from between 1986 or 1987 and the beginning of the middle of the 90s where... I hadn't, even myself, I hadn't watched any of the Star Wars movies at this point for probably a few years. Because it was it was really off a lot of people's radar. Well, and that's one of the things that stood out to me when I was watching it. Because you and I watched it during two, especially as far as Star Wars is concerned, two totally different periods. Oh, yeah. And I watched it like... I want to say it was February of 19, uh, 1999, and believe me, everybody was talking Star Wars at the time. Mm-hmm. And it, it kind of went right by me that everything Star Wars in this movie was kind of of a piece with pop culture at that time in a sort of way that I don't think Kevin Smith intended. I think he intended that to be countercultural, and now Star Wars was right back in the spotlight. And it it, it is the sort of kind of – I don't know. There's a there, there's an expression in cinema, and I forget what you call it, but basically it's to do with the intent of the filmmaker. There's actually there's a word for it, and and then there's also another term for it when that intent gets overturned, right? Because of you know events going on in society, current events and politics and all these sorts of things, where that ends up getting like. And I think this is maybe an extreme example, but it would give you an idea. There's a, there's a parody Charlie Chaplin movie out there called the great dictator or the great leader or something I, like that. Yeah. I've, I've actually seen it. it was, it's where he is essentially, he's essentially playing Hitler. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is it was intended at the time to be mockery and sort of funny and all of this sort of stuff. And that was at a time when I think people had a very different perception 
of Adolf Hitler than they do now. And the intent of the film during and after the war definitely got overturned. And I think that to kind of draw it all back, I think you could make that same argument of the Star Wars stuff here that that which had been had been culture defining, had become counterculture by the early 90s and then was again culture defining in in the late 90s. And I don't want to again, this is probably interesting only to me. So I'm just going to drop it. But it's just it's one of those things that I've always been kind of interested in interested by. But I I, I get I get the same thing because of of the I'm not I'm going to use the word wrong because I don't want to apply to either of us. But there is that hipster mentality sometimes of something that was yours and then it becomes popular and kind of the purpose or the or, or, or the view of it has turned because it was niche, niche, niche. I can never pronounce that word correctly at one point. And then it became the whole, the conversation in Star Wars at that point in time was not, it would, it would be the movie people still compared it to compared any science fiction movie to in a review. Like when Independence came out, Independence Day came out, the, mm-hmm. the big, one of the big reviews from like, you know, some rando critic that they, you know, how they get, you know, Bob Jones from WXRO in, you know, Schenectady says, this is this generation Star Wars, you know, that they'd still do that. But like I said, not, there weren't a lot of people had, had Lucas not re-released the films and then come out with the prequels that the movies would probably have been not forgotten, but maybe on the level of maybe on a level like something like the planet, the original planet of the apes, which everybody remembers, but it's not, um, you know, but but it's almost almost for like a certain segment of the population and kids might eventually come around to watching them as opposed to now where it is just it's a constant thing and um and this movie kind of did the same thing where i mean you talk about let's talk about the films legacy a little bit this movie's been aped a couple of times as well one of the better ones that i remember which is i think is underrated cuz everybody every critic hated this movie was the Ryan Reynolds movie waiting yes that was the one i was going to bring yeah. up yeah and I love that movie. Me too. And it's the same fucking thing with situations in some cases that are absolutely impossible. And yet there's the same feel of it. Now, I've never re- worked at a chain restaurant. Did well, But at the same I, time, I've you can take the setting of Clerks and put it in different things and you have a lot of the same feel to it. And I think that's why this movie holds up so well too. Right. And, I, and, and you know, I, I agree with that. I always thought that I, I never wanted to call waiting a sort of a knockoff of Clerks. I always thought it's in the same tone, same yeah. style, same spirit. But there's a um, it draws its inspiration from Clerks. I'd say though, uh, absolutely. But there's yeah. a, and I don't mean this in like a Chris Nolan sense of the word. But there's a sort of, I don't know if I'd go so far as re, uh, reality, mm-hmm. but there is a groundedness to yeah. Clerks that I just find. Maybe it's it's just because of the fact that it, uh, Ryan Ry, uh, Ryan Reynolds is the headliner in Waiting, and he's just so funny to begin with. There's no way you can do anything grounded with him. See Green Lantern for more on that. And it's it to me, it's just it's one of those movies that I don't think would have been possible had Clerks not already sort of made I don't know made its mark. And. and- Waiting has – I swear I'll do an episode or a post of Waiting at some point. But Waiting has also grounds Reynolds' character because John Dale, John Francis Daly is the trainee through the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And 
If you really break that movie down, John Francis Daly, who I knew from Freaks and Geeks, and he's the audience, basically. He's yeah. our little avatar, our stand-in. And at the end of the movie, he has that rant where he just turns to Monty and goes, Fuck you, Monty. You're so witty. You're the funniest guy at shenanigans. And he says it's like being the smartest kid with Down syndrome. <laughs> and we're because we're all thinking that through the whole movie because movies like that have that guy or have that dialogue that's just a little too witty and that became way too common in the late 90s where mm-hmm. every character was speaking almost like in metafictional terms and every character was self-aware especially among teen movies and every character was a wise ass there was nobody there was no character in a lot of comedies in the late 90s especially teen comedies that was 100% sincere that was kind of the, I don't know why I'm thinking of the Goonies, but the Sean Astin character, the Goonies, who had his funny moments, but he was the sincere kid. You know, he was the Elliot type. And right. that type of character started to disappear from movies, especially among kids and teenagers, to be replaced by the kids who were precocious and smarter than everything, or the character who had all the witty lines and all the stuff. And Randall's got a lot of witty lines, but Randall has a lot more honesty as opposed to shtick. Right. And I think you're right in saying that Clerks is a very grounded film in that regard because it still has a lot of honesty and sincerity to it that later movies did not have. And I and honestly, I think when we say later movies didn't have, that, by the way, at least for my money, includes other Kevin Smith movies. It's yes. like that was the one part that he just – it was almost like he was reluctant to mess with that again because he realized – maybe he yeah. realized that – or he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to do it – do that kind of yeah. – sentiment justice uh, a second time. Does that make sense? Except for maybe Chasing Amy. I think in in this in whatever seriousness there is in Clerks, I think Chasing Amy probably comes the close to it, closest to it. But Chasing Amy is almost a whole different thing for him. Chasing Amy is practically a drama. And and I know there's people have a love hate hate relationship with that movie, partially because of some of the you know because of, but there because I mean, there are very very funny lines in there, but you don't feel that he's trying too hard. And I thought that with Mallrats is almost deliberately dumb, and there are places in Mallrats where he is trying way too hard. Well, I mean that's a filmmaker being kind of hemmed in by you know his own bullshit mixed yeah. in with censors, uh, and I've always thought that you know Mallrats as he would have wanted to make it. And there's no there's no director's cut in the world that can fix this. Yeah. But Mallrats, as he wanted to make it, I think would have been, and I almost I don't want to get too far into Mallrats because, as you say, we're going to no. talk about yeah. whether it's my show or yours. We'll actually uh, talk about it. Yeah, but what I want to say though is this: the Mallrats that he wanted to make, I think, would have been, it would have been actually our generation's Porkies. And yeah. unfortunately, what we got was something that was just so slapsticky and over the top and all this and you know what maybe there's an argument there that it plays to the strengths of what that movie should be not mm-hmm. necessarily what he would have wanted to do though mm-hmm. and as far as chasing amy is concerned honestly so much of you know i i remember you know that kind of rolling off my back a little bit when i saw it when i was in high school and then it hit home cuz everyone has that one just hellacious breakup you you know with yeah. uh, with somebody that and usually not always but usually it's that first breakup you yeah. have where 
you know, uh, one of you throws the other one out the door and says, "I if I see you again in this life, I'm shooting you on sight. You don't yeah. ever come near me again, right? <laughs> you know, I, and I had one of those too, so I yeah. know exactly what you mean. And then, you know, you watch Chasing Amy then, and it's – and dude, I got to tell you, man, I fucking cried. And um, I sat – my my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and I watched that on video when I first got it. And um, I think we sat there for a good – at least a good minute or two in complete silence at just how heavy that movie is. You know, like – and like in a good way, you know? Right, because there's so much heavy emotion in that movie, and it's just kind of the same way. It really does hit you there. And then, as an adult, I just wish jo- Joey Lauren Adams would shut the fuck up. So that's here we there's are. A, she her lines are very. She's very melodramatic in in um, in a few of the scenes, and and some of those scenes are where there are comedy bits and clerks that don't work. There are dramatic bits in Jason Amy that actually are way more melodramatic than they have to be, yet you overlook them because everything else in the movie, in terms of its drama, are actually very, very good. Right. And that actually has one of the best Silent Bob monologues ever. Because he, and, but then he would get into Dogma, which is... Just a bunch of pretentious bullshit. I'm sorry. It, it I'm... is. There are some very funny bits in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what gear are you in? Gear... Yeah, but 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 there and there there are some other very funny moments in it. I think it's his attempt at a comic book movie, but he also had to drop a lot of this kind of high concept religious message to it or religious satire, which mm-hmm. in some cases works and in some cases fall flat falls flat. It, and I think it depends on you know it might it might not even depend on your view. It might depend on the quality of the scene or the quality of the performances. Well. I can think of two uh, of, of two very good examples of something that works and something that just fucking falls flat. There's that bit where Linda Fiorentino finds out what her mission, whatever the hell that is. The last scion and all that, right? Yeah, and she's in, she's standing in this, I think it's in a lake or something. Oh, and, yeah. And it's just, it is just uncomfortably, and I don't mean like the, the issues and themes. It's cliche. Down, I mean, yeah, and it's just, it doesn't fuck, it, it doesn't work. No. and. Anyway, and so that is definitely one of the, that, and so many others, so many other moments like it just don't work. There's another thing though, and it's George Carlin yeah. playing a Catholic cardinal. Now, if you're at all familiar with George Carlin's stand-up career, mm-hmm. George Carlin playing a playing a Catholic cardinal, that by itself is funny. You don't even yeah. need to see the movie. Yeah. You know how hysterical. That oh is. yeah, and I. You know, and it's kind of funny that you know, I it was I, I think it was when he he was unveiling the Buddy Christ statue, and I was just roaring because it was just the absurdity of that, you know. And it was just it, there was nothing, you know. You've got George Carlin, he's a cardinal, he's got the Buddy Christ statue behind him, and it's just there's nothing about this. It, it, it's it, it's funny all by itself, but it's meta funny, and it, it's that's where the religious satire works. You know, right. because even and, even you 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 and I are, are very much different in our religious views, but I think on any level you can just appreciate him poking fun at that. You know, of course, and I think that's one of the reasons Carlin was game to do it. I mean, me play a cardinal, yeah. absolutely, yeah. sir. And anyway, I mean, there's so much about dogma that works, but there's even more that just doesn't. It, it almost suffers from like. Um, the good in it was like Alan Rickman, for instance, is is superb in the movie. 
the the bad of it is one if it actually falls into one of the tra- trap that a lot of comedies from the 1980s fell into is that about two-thirds in the way of the movie the plot has to be resolved mm-hmm. and so the plot gets in the way of the actual jokes so there's so many movies there are a lot of comedy movies from the 80s that don't that in their last maybe quarter or not even third but maybe at least their last quarter of the movie actually isn't very funny because I don't know there's a com- there's an action element to it or there's something that has to be fixed so they actually have to kind of get serious and that kind of happens with dogma I mean there the the last when when it's the whole showdown at in front of the church and you know the only, one of the few funny moments from the last half of the movie, from the last quarter or so of the movie is um I chuckled when uh when she hits Jason Lee with the with the driver and he implodes and she's like well he the cuz the cardinal George Carlin she's like he's basically the type of guy who would bless his golf clubs and I'm like <laughs> that's funny but otherwise the whole you know when when Bartleby and Loki show up at the church and basically all hell breaks loose or it's probably a bad turn of phrase you know but everything goes to shit the movie the movie has to stop being funny but unfortunately it it kind of it's a little bit of a thud, you know, and the, the literal Deus ex machina at the end should be funny. And it's, it's well, all and, right, but well, it's not, I, you know, cause yeah. that should be funny. God coming down and basically snapping her fingers and, and thing. And it's not the casting of Alanis Morissette or anything that doesn't make funny. It's just that it just, I don't know. It just, that doesn't, it just didn't work for me the way, the way it was all staged. Well, and there's that, but, you know, my, and just, this is sort of my parting comment on Dogma. Yeah. You know, it, at the end of the day, Kevin Smith makes comedies. Yeah. And Dogma, for whatever else it might be, strives to be a comedy. This is two hours long, people. <laughs> and the rule of thumb goes that you don't have a two, like, basically a comedy that goes more than 90 minutes. Unless you're Judd Apatow. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Smith, yeah, Judd Apatow, yeah. you are not. No. And, you know, it's just – this is one of those movies that – I'm not saying that there's no way to make a movie like this work. I just don't think Smith is the guy to do it. He's not He's not satirical, and he was trying to do satire, I think. And then Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, I have not been able to get through that movie more than – I've seen it twice, and I have not been able to get that, through that movie since about 2002, 2003. Really? I don't know. I just, I am, and I don't, it's like, it's not bad. I'm just like, there's a lot of, I've caught, I've caught it on cable a couple of times and maybe I just wasn't in the mood to watch it when I was just flipping through and came across it. But I was like, I I think it's that middle sequence with the bank robbery and, you know, just like everything revolves around a fart joke and I'm just kind of like, yeah. And I kind of—that's where he kind of started to lose me. Even though I thought it was pretty funny, I never actually saw Jersey Girl. I have heard really good things about Red State, and I haven't had the chance to watch it. But did not really like Zach and Miri make a porno, which should have been a funny movie in its concept, but was just too juvenile for me. Right. And maybe I'm just being a cranky old bastard. I don't know. <laughs> Well, one of the things about Jane Silent Bob Strike Back that worked for me, in fact, it was really the the, the moment that I saw it, right? Mm-hmm. You remember I, I told you about that hellacious breakup that I had? Yeah. I had just had it. Okay. Right? 
And when I saw Jay and Silent Bob strike, well, I said it, it had been a couple of months before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the usual, you know, bullshit that comes out of that, you know, you spend the whole summer just hating yourself, hating her, but you don't hate her because you love her, but you fucking hate her. Oh, dude, you, I've you know? been there. And so, you know, I spent that entire summer. I mean, you know, anyway, I just, I, I don't want to get going on, you know, oh, melodrama. We had, we had concert tickets. <laughs> So that went on for a few weeks longer than it should have. Oh, boy. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, when you have business like that. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's. She offered, in hindsight, she offered to pay me for my ticket, but she was going to take the guy she was fucking around, you know? Oh, man. Behind my back. So I did it out of spite. And I'm like, and, and, and 20 years later, I'm like, I should have just taken the money. Yeah, you, well. I, as you say, hindsight really is twenty twenty on that one. But you know, it was just it was a shitty summer and everything. And then I I don't remember how, but I somehow got tickets to a screener of oh, a Jay, cool. Jay and Silent Bob Strike, and not just, and I and I do mean plural tickets. Oh, cool. And so I took all of my friends, uh, you know, to go, and it was the end of the summer. And I got to tell you, it was just so good, you know, because this this guy whose work has meant so much to me over the years, and. You know, I'm hanging out with my friends, and yeah, that chick is gone, but fuck her. You know, be, you know, mm-hmm. greener pastures and all this stuff, and it kind of felt like that. You know, Jay and Silent Bob seeing that movie was like putting, I guess, sort of putting that summer into a box and locking it. You know, it's it's over. I don't ever have to do it again, and now I get to move on with life. And when I saw it that first time, God, I loved it. Cause I knew that nothing about that movie has anything to do with what I was going through at the time. It's just, that's what it felt like to me mm-hmm. after seeing it again, even just a, like a, like a year or so later, yeah. it's just not very funny. I'm sorry. It says the thing. And, and I saw it, it took me two or three watches to actually realize how not funny it is. I remember liking it the first time. I do remember being annoyed in the theater because we went with a couple of my, uh, we went, with a couple of friends of ours and one of them had his girlfriend with him or no one of she had her boyfriend and her boyfriend proceeded to explain to her every reference that was being made oh like that's the guy from the thing that's the guy from that's that that's that and i'm just sitting there i'm and and i looked at amanda at one point and i was just like are you fucking kidding me like you know like and, and you could tell like she even she was getting into like yeah i you don't have to explain the movie to me. You know, it's, you know, this isn't some pretentious French film. This is, you know, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Um, and I watched it again on video and I was like, this is okay. And then, like I said, I just, it's, it, it doesn't hold up on subsequent viewings. All right. So I did want to bring very, very quickly. I wanted to, to touch on this and, and it could always be fodder for another episode, but what is your opinion on clerks too? Um, I'm, I'm going to tease I'm, – I'm going to give a very short answer on that to tease if you want to do this again later. Yes. It is one of the greatest movies. I think it is incredibly underrated. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree. I've only seen it a couple of times, and I haven't watched it in a number of years. Um, I missed it in the theater because I just – for whatever reason, I just wasn't you know wasn't around or wasn't able to go. And um, students I had were raving about it right around the time it came out on video. And I rented it. And then I told them, I said, look, you guys are like sophomores in high school, but go rent the first one. <laughs> and they came back. They were like, you weren't kidding. I'm like, yeah. So, but I, I agree with you. From what I remember, it doesn't get the credit that it deserves. So I'm glad you agree with me. 
Well, I know better than to disagree, put it that way. (laughs) You also agree with me on Man of Steel, which is a whole other conversation that we won't get into, lest I get the hate email for that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's what my show's for. That's where all the crap can be sent. So all the psycho letters and stuff, you should should check out some of the stuff I don't read on the air. So (laughs) So any any last uh, word on on the original original clerks? Um, Any final thoughts? Absolutely. This is the movie that I don't know as I'd go so fa- so far as to say that it defined a generation because I don't think it was that far reaching, but it illustrated a, a, a generation. It kind of reflected it in ways truthful, in ways less truthful. But at the same time, a lot of people have taken it to heart, and there's a reason for that. So if you've never seen it, and I don't know how you couldn't have seen it after listening to all of us, you know, talk about it for as long as we did, but if. Yeah. You know, if if for whatever reason you've somehow made it through this show and you haven't and you haven't seen Clerks yet, you look. I, the movie itself isn't much longer than what this episode is going to turn out to be. So just do the right thing, man. Go see the movie. Yeah. Not only that, if if you like the movie, go get tracked down. I'm pretty sure it's available. The when they did the DVD released about it was about ten years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are extras on that DVD that are incredible. Like a lot of times, extras on DVD really aren't worth watching. These are. Some of the panels they have, the lost scene, which it's kind of hit or miss for me. A completely um, different cut of the movie. Completed, they, the original cut of the movie without the soundtrack and with, with some of the, the scenes that were left out. You can buy this. You could at least one point. I have the screenplay. in. The, the, he published the screenplay to that and Chasing Amy in one book. Um, I found it at a cheapo bin in Borders one day. Hmm. Um, and So there's a lot about this film that if you like the film, you can almost go study and look at and listen to commentary tracks and stuff. And that's one of the things that makes it, you know, almost as almost like as a student of Kevin Smith and stuff. And, and, uh, and he's been always been very good with extras too. But, uh, but I agree with you. It's just, it is one of those films that it's like a touchstone for, for our generation. And that like, it is, it's maybe not defining our generation, but in the same way that Pulp Fiction or some of the other movies that came out, in the mid 90s um, were when we all started to come of age and kind of age out of into more mature material Mm -hmm. Um, this was one of those touchstones this was one of those points that everybody hit and where we all went with it we all went in different directions you know with different filmmakers and different things we appreciate but a lot of us have in in our generation have this movie in common which is one of the things we've always appreciated I agree. All right, so thank you very much for being on. This was a lot of fun. Um, I think, I think we went deeper with this film than a lot of people would have expected us to, and that's what I love about this. So. <laughs> well, I, as I say, thank you for having me on. It was a blast, and it's a movie that I like. It's a show that I like. It's a podcaster that I like. So. There's, there's no downside here for me. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And uh, we, in the next episode, I'm not entirely sure what I'm doing, but I'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks. So I'll be out there. Go rent clerks in the meantime. And uh, thank you for listening and take care. July 2014 to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, a new epic mega-series. Trinus Magnus honors Superman, as only 
His Excellency Magnus Can. Twelve episodes, all eras. An encomium of Superman comics. The oldest of the old, the newest of the new. A tasteful selection of everything in between. Plus, guest appearances from too many podcasters to count. The fun starts on July 22nd, 2014. Be there or kill yourself. Trinus Magnus punches reality. Only at twotruefreaks.com. the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, and other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, show notes, and essays on other topics random in the world of popular culture can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Pop Culture Affidavit also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is the division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. Noise, smoking weed, smoking weed, doing coke, drinking beers, pack our ass, smoke up, man. Time to kick back, drink some beers, and smoke some weed.